This morning, across all three services, we're starting a new series. Reed and I are going to do it together, and it feeds into a church-wide Bible study that we're going to launch at the end of this month. But it deals with what it means to be community and how that helps us grow as people of faith. This morning, we're going to study Ephesians chapter 2. And while you could certainly turn to it in your pew Bible, I want to tell you up front that I'm going to do it from the message translation. The message translation is that modern translation that doesn't always follow as well with our pew Bible as, as we would like it to. So go ahead and turn to that if you would like. Otherwise, listen for the word and we'll study together. Gracious God, thank you for this good opportunity. Help us do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. In the scripture that we're going to study this morning, Paul, who is a follower of Jesus Christ, is writing a letter to the people of Ephesus. Ephesus, not much today, located in modern-day Turkey, was actually back then a huge, booming city. It was a new city, an up-and-coming city, very similar to how people view like Austin, Texas today. And the people, they were just getting going on, on figuring out what it meant to be a community that was connected to each other because they wanted to follow Jesus. So when he writes this letter, Paul is writing to the whole city, and the problem is that he's got two different audiences that he's trying to reach. The first is this group of people who are convinced that Jesus is worth following. The second group is a group who is sitting on the fence, and and they're there because they're not sure that Jesus wants them to follow him. They've kind of been living a rough life, and, and the world has already said to them, you're not worth very much, so why would Jesus want anything to do with you? Now, before we look at this second chapter of Paul's letter, I've got some news, some important breaking news in my life that I want to share with you. On Thursday of this week, I got my first ever speeding ticket. Not, I, now hold on, judgment people, hold on now. (laughs) Not only was this my first ticket ever, it was the first time that I've ever been pulled over, ever, in 20 years, ever. So Paul writes, Paul writes, it wasn't so long ago that you were mired in the old stagnant life of sin, and he is right. It wasn't so long ago. In fact, it was only 72 hours ago that the Manatee County Sheriff's Office issued my citation. I can still remember what I had for breakfast that morning. Sometimes people shy away from worship and and coming to worship services because they're pretty sure that they're the only sinner in the room. And Paul knew better. He knew that everybody makes mistakes. And in fact, in another book of the scriptures, Paul writes that when it comes to sin, he's pretty much the biggest sinner in the whole history of the world. And if you think about that, even that's a sin because he's bragging about how great he is at sinning. And he wanted the people of Ephesus to always remember that there was a time, there was a time when all of them and all of us were deeply mired in sin, Little little sin, big sin, all sin. And yet, when the world pushed them and us aside, Jesus redeemed them. Jesus redeemed us. Paul writes, 
You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief, and then you exhaled disobedience. I got to tell you, I would not call my first personal experience with law enforcement a gracious experience. If, if I was visiting from a far-off place with no broader knowledge of our fine community, my experience would be that this place is an unkind, ungracious, merciless place to be. After 20 years of a perfect driving record, I came into our office on Thursday morning, having been cited for nine miles, which I will fight with anyone about, over the speed limit, feeling pretty worthless and very small about myself. In fact, I was so angry that I thought, I need to get back out on the road and get some road rage out and just keep going with all of this. Because the message from the world is that I'm such a sinner that it doesn't matter anyway, so I shouldn't even bother trying. It did not make for a good day, and for a while there, I just didn't care. I just didn't care what I was doing. And Paul says, for all of you that just sat there in judgment on me, Paul says, we all did it. All of us have done it. All of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. And all of us are in the same boat. It's a wonder that God did not lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Instead, instead, immense in mercy and with incredible love, he embraced us. He took us, our sin-dead lives, and he made us alive in Christ. See how different that is from the way of the world? God doesn't throw the book at us. Quite the opposite. He comes to us with this immense mercy and this incredible love. He embraces us. I assure you of all the things that happened with that officer on Thursday, we did not end with a hug. It did not happen. Now, when God does this, when, when he comes with this immense mercy and love, he does it all on his own. No help from us, Scripture says, and that's really important, really, really important for us to know because what that means is that we can't manipulate God. It's not like there's something that we can do or, or a way that we can behave that's going to bend God to our will. It means that God's not oblivious to what we've done and that somehow we can convince or connive our way out of it. It doesn't mean that God's just going to let us run around sinning all over the place. But what it does mean is that God's going to embrace us. And God is going to forgive us, not because of anything we've done, but because God loves us, loves us. And there is nothing, nothing that you can do that is going to cause God to unlove you. That's so not how it works in the way of the world. There's this commercial <clears throat> of, of these three older ladies, and they don't quite understand the technology that is Facebook. So to demonstrate how ridiculous this world can be, two of the ladies get into an argument over something. It's about who paid less for their car insurance. And one of the ladies, she, as they get into this argument, she says, I unfriend you. Now, if you know about Facebook, you know what unfriending is, but can you imagine saying to someone in real life, I unfriend you, and that's it. And the other lady gets up and she goes, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. And she's absolutely right. That's not how it works with God, but that is absolutely how it works in the ways of the world. We're so quick to walk away from each other, to disregard each other, to not forgive one another, no wonder so many of us struggle with the idea that God 
could love us and forgive us with no strings attached. Not only that, but then the scripture says that he picked us up and he sat us down in the highest heaven in the company with Jesus, our Messiah. Now understand, God picks us up. It's not that he's elevating our sin. But God understands that sin is pretty painful on its own and that no matter what, we're going to have to deal with the consequences of it. So for God, it's not necessary. It is not necessary for him to shame us anymore. Believe me, I was plenty embarrassed when we're standing there in the middle of the parking lot and the officer refused to turn off his flashing lights. God, it happened. Yeah. God comes into our brokenness and he lets us know that we are so much more. We're so much more than what the world has labeled us. And when he picks us up, he sets us in the company of Jesus, God's beloved son. And that's that moment. That's that moment when you're sitting there next to the son of God that you understand, I'm a child of God. Now, verse 7 says, Now God has us where he wants us with all this time in the world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea, it's all his work, and all we have to do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role, Paul says, because if we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make ourselves nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does the good work that he's already gotten ready for us to do, work that we had better be doing. For people who have experienced the mercy of God, I mean really, truly experienced it, it should be our joy to share. It should never, ever be a burden. By forgiving us, by embracing us, God has lifted this terribly heavy burden off of us. Let me ask you, if you're going down the street, going down the street, and, and this is never going to happen, so you can be honest in your answer here, but you're, you're going down the street, and there's one of your friends, and your friend is trying to lug a refrigerator or a couch down the street, and you see them as you're going by in your car. Are you going to, like, wave to them and say, hey, see you at the game tonight? Or are you going to stop? You're going to stop, and you're going to help your friend. My guess is that if they're really your friend, if you really care about them, that you're going to hop out of the car and you're going to help in any way that you can. And the reason that you're going to stop is because at some point, at some point you moved. You've moved. And somebody came along and somebody helped you when you were trying to lug your couch or your refrigerator or some other heavy burden. Somebody helped you. And because of that, you're going to help someone else. When we love our friends we are quick to show them that they do not have to carry that burden of sin any longer. But there's a challenge. The challenge is that for those whose burdens were lifted some time ago, we tend to take that for granted. And Paul warns us that that's really dangerous. So in verse 11, he says, look, don't take any of this for granted. This freedom that you have to move about without the weight of sin, don't take that 
for granted. It was only yesterday that you were outsiders to God's ways and you had no idea about any of this. You didn't know the first thing about how God works, that you hadn't had the faintest idea of Christ. You knew nothing of the rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel. You didn't have a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. And now, because of Christ, see, that community had just heard about Christ. Because of Christ dying that death and shedding that blood, you who were once out of it altogether are now all in on everything. It doesn't take long for us to forget what God has done for us. If you don't know what Paul is talking about here with all these covenants and these promises, he just went Old Testament on the people. That's all he did. He's going back thousands of years and event after event where people were told God loved them and God forgives them. And they held on to that for a little while. But then they took it for granted and they forgot about it. And God kept starting the whole process over and over and over again. And then after that cycle repeated itself countless times, God did something that would be extremely hard for the people to forget. He sent his son into the world to pay for everybody's sins. Because you see, back then, you literally had to pay as you went. Think of it as a pay-as-you-go program. And you'd make a mistake and you'd have to pay. And then you'd go through the whole week and you'd have to pay for all of those sins. And they paid for them with animals and and with money and, and offerings. So for every mistake you made, that cost you a pigeon. And you don't have enough pigeons in your bank account to pay for the sins of this week, much less the ones going into next week. And the people couldn't keep up, and they were crushed under their debt. And God said, no more. No more of that. And he sent his son, and his son paid for everything, every single debt. And that's why you're not bringing in your pigeons to the offering table this morning because God has already paid for that in Christ. And through sacrificing himself, we became able to get close enough to God to feel that embrace of mercy and forgiveness. Verse 14 says, the Messiah has made things up between us so that we're now together on this. It's not just that Jesus brought us closer to the heart of God, but brought us closer to one another. There's both non-Jewish and Jewish insiders and outsiders that he's talking to in Ephesus. He tore down the wall we use to keep each other at a distance, says the scripture. He repealed the law codes that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered people more than it helped them. And then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people who are separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, what he did in Jesus Christ was he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody everybody. Do you hear that? Everybody. Jesus is not some scarce commodity. We're so afraid to tell people about Jesus because we're afraid that that if they get onto this Jesus thing, there's not going to be enough in the body of Christ for us. But I assure you, the body of Christ does not run out. Everybody gets a fresh start. And it turns out that the fresh starts, they're not in limited supply either. And the other thing that Paul is getting at here is that we humans— We are super awesome, super awesome about putting up dividing walls and separating ourselves from other people. But within the life of worship, we're in a different place. We may not always agree on music, on style, on preaching, on mission, on technology, but all of that, every bit of it is secondary, if not tertiary, to the one thing that keeps us together, and that's our belief that Jesus Christ loves us. 
and loves the world, that he died for us and for the world, and that through him, we and all of the people of the world are forgiven. If we could all just agree on that much, just that part of it, that Jesus loves the world, that he's the Savior, then we can overcome any of the rest of the differences that might separate us. Paul says in 16, Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. And that cross got us to embrace. And that was the end of hostility. Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders and peace to us insiders. And he treated us as equals, so he made us equals. And through him we both share the same spirit and we, still, we all have the same equal access of, to the Father. Don't ever let anybody tell you that you don't have the right to talk to God directly. You absolutely do. Scripture says we have equal access to the Father. Paul goes on to write, that's plain enough, isn't it? You're no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith, this is now your home country. You're no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here. You have the same rights as everybody else to be called a Christian. God is building a home, and he's using us all, irrespective of how we got here, says Paul, and what he's building. He used the the apostles and the prophets for the foundation. But now, now he's going to use you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone that's going to hold us all together. Paul says, we see this take shape day after day, a holy temple built by God, all of us built into it, a temple at which God is quite at home. The scripture is so clear that you're a part of it. You are a part of it. You know that we introduced the well today. And the well was named after the story of the Samaritan woman who was told that that she was such a sinner that she was unlovable and unforgivable and irredeemable. And the world beat her down, and they humiliated her, and they left her to be crushed under the weight of her own sin. And they laughed at her. And then Jesus came. And if you remember me preaching about this scripture a while back, I I told you something very important about this. It's not just that Jesus came. It's that he went out of his way. He went far, far out of his way to where she was so that she could hear directly from him that she was forgiven and that she was loved and she was priceless. Can you imagine if you have spent your whole life being told that you are nothing to have Jesus come to where you are to make sure that you hear that you are priceless? And some folks might say, well, well, couldn't she have shown up in regular church like everybody else? And it's funny that you would ask that because that was the question that was going through her head. She asked that of Jesus. And it turned out that what happened was that the world had pronounced such a harsh harsh judgment on her that she didn't feel like regular church was going to be any different. She figured that as soon as she showed up that everyone would look at her and she'd stick out like a sore thumb, that she wouldn't wear the right clothes or stand at the right time or say the right words. And because of all that, Because of all that, she didn't even bother to try. So she hung out at the well, and Jesus showed up, and her life was changed forever. And that's what we want to happen in this place, whether it's at 8 o'clock in the morning with the chapel, or over at the well, or here in this service. What we want to happen is that when we walk in these doors, we are reminded that sin does not claim us anymore. None of us is walking around with a label that says, I am a sinner. 
We want people to know that they are forgiven, that they are loved, that they are wanted. And as a result, we all get to go out of these doors as free people. We are free to love others. We're free to forgive them. We're free to share with them a Savior who comes to us at our well. To God be the glory, now and forevermore. Amen.